Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by neurotologist Dr. Dan Coelho, and we will be discussing sudden hearing loss. Dr. Coelho, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. Good to be here. So when we talk about sudden hearing loss, um, when someone presents to your clinic, uh, what are they typically complaining of, and how do you evaluate them? Sure. So patients will, of course, come to you complaining of hearing loss. It's right there. It's right there in the title. Uh, the issue is how do you find sudden? Uh, and there are a lot of different ways to define sudden sudden hearing loss. And um, the traditional kind of answer is is over the course of three days or seventy two hours. But um, it can happen much shorter. The, where this gets real tricky is that oftentimes patients don't present uh, to you as an ENT doctor, or really even to their primary care doctor, or to anybody uh, within those for, with that first kind of three three days of it happening. They think, oh, maybe I've got a cold. Maybe I you know, maybe it's allergies, maybe I've got some wax in my ear, maybe it's something, I'll, I'll just give it, you know, let it pass. So it can be real tricky for us as otolaryngologists to see these patients um, very quickly after, and it's important to see them soon after because their treatment is, uh, and their outcomes are, and prognosis is, is better by seeing them sooner. Traditional definition really, again, as I said, is about, is about 72 hours, but um, patients don't always present, um, you know, straightforward with uh, with just a can hear and then all of a sudden, boom, out of the blue, they can't hear. Sometimes it can kind of be an in and out that can happen. Sometimes it's, they get a little bit of associated tinnitus or some fullness, uh, maybe even some dizziness. It can almost be a prodrome uh, for some patients. Um, but, but, but generally, I consider it within, within a few days. And when you evaluate these patients, what questions are you asking them apart from hearing loss to determine what's going on? So a lot of same questions you'd ask anybody for, you know, just a, a general hearing-related uh, question. There, you know, what's your history of noise exposure? What's your history of, um, you know, recent illness, recent travel? Uh, what's your past otologic and hearing history? Uh, of course, knowing their overall medical conditions and comorbidities, as, as well as medications, uh, is important, um, including over-the-counter medications. Uh, basically, you know, just a thorough, thorough history and physical that you would do. Uh, for for anyone, um, uh, a lot of times people have a preceding upper respiratory infection, but frequently they don't. Sometimes it's just their immune system is down. Sometimes it's even a GI related problem that they might have. Say in my experience, um, frequently it's just out of the blue, truly out of the blue. Uh, but there are occasional cases where you can you can drill down a little bit and you find out that oh maybe they had just taken, um, let's say a PDE like uh, like. Um, Viagra or Cialis or something like that that's been associated with sudden hearing loss. Yeah, what are some other risk factors or are there any that we can really pin down to this? Yeah, mentally I kind of break it down into older patients and younger patients. Um, you know, the differential for sudden hearing loss is wide. Uh, so we're just talking about sudden hearing loss right now. We don't know that it's idiopathic sudden sensory hearing loss, which is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. But your working diagnosis in your head has to entertain the fact that that patients can have lots of different things going on. So so there are people who will have sudden hearing loss that can be a high drops picture or an autoimmune picture. Um, they're not all necessary, or even retrochoclear pathology or intracochlear pathology. Um, so you don't necessarily know. But for the patients, you know, once you have the hindsight of knowing you've got patients that have this, what we call idiopathic sudden sensory neuro hearing loss, uh, I mentally kind of break them up into two, two different groups, younger patients and older patients. Um, uh, and older patients tend to have uh, higher risk factors for other their, their comorbidities of microvascular disease, diabetes, atherosclerotic carotid artery disease, or coronary artery disease. Uh, these are things that kind of raise your suspicion. 
um, that this might be a thromboembolic event versus in younger patients, especially those that might have had a preceding upper respiratory or some some sort of preceding illness that it may be virally mediated. The fact is that we don't we don't really know. Mm-hmm. We don't know for sure in an individual person. It's very hard to get patients to donate their temporal bones while they're alive. <laughs> Uh, and as we kind of keep weaving through this, I do want to bring up that uh, there are really great clinical practice guidelines that were published in 2019. This was an update to previous guidelines. So some of the questions I ask will also be kind of coming from this. Uh, and that informs uh, my next question, which is, uh, what do you do on physical exam when you see these patients? Uh, again, same thing you'd want to do with, you know, with any patient is a thorough head and neck exam focused on, focused on the ear. Um, you know, there are viral conditions of herpes zoster oticus, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. You want to take a look at the cranial nerves. You want to look for vesicles inside the ear. You want to rule out any other causes of sudden hearing loss. I mean, certainly you can have a wax impaction. I mean, anywhere, anywhere from the external, middle, or inner ear can be a source of sudden hearing loss. It can be a sudden impaction of wax. It can be new onset of a middle ear effusion. It can be, a, you know, if the history is there, a patient can give you a history. It could be a perforated eardrum. It could be associated with pain. All these, all the things that should be fairly obvious. Uh, the, the group of patients that we kind of lump into the sudden hearing loss, or the, certainly the idiopathic sudden sensory nerve hearing loss, generally have a completely normal physical exam, uh, with the possible exception of tuning forks. Um, but even the tuning forks may not be helpful, of course, if it's more of a sloped high frequency, you know, unilateral asymmetric uh, loss. So if you're testing using your 512 tuning fork, you may not necessarily have a Weber that lateralizes to the side of the sensory nerve hearing loss if the loss isn't at, isn't at 512 hertz. And moving on, what is the pathophysiology of sudden hearing loss, and uh, how do we break this down between conductive and then sensory, which we're going to be moving more towards the idiopathic side of things? Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, there's a there's a wide differential for for sudden hearing loss, and it could and it all depends on where the problem is. I kind of mentally think about it anatomically: uh, external ear, middle ear, and inner ear. And there's all different ways to evaluate that. You know, your differential, as I mentioned, is pretty wide. And uh, you know, hopefully it's pretty easy to diagnose a wax impaction, but never assume that's the problem. You know, you'd have to take the wax out and then ask the patient, "Do you feel like your hearing's better?" If the answer is no, then you have to you've got to dig a little deeper. That's you know, figuratively speaking, not literally. Um, uh, but but the differential is very wide, so that's that's your job is to figure out you know what what's going on. Never assume that it's idiopathic sudden sensory hearing loss. Um, so. The pathophysiology of those, of course, are different and probably beyond the scope of what you want to talk about today, but the pathophysiology of idiopathic sudden sensory hearing losses, which is really something that you, you kind of only figure out later, and you can maybe assume that that's what it is, but you have to, you have to do your due diligence. Uh, the pathophysiology is still something that's under debate. Um, again, we're talking just about idiopathic sudden sensory hearing loss. That could be, I think the leading candidates are generally microvascular uh, uh, or uh, you know, a, a, a cessation of blood flow and oxygenation to the inner ear uh, versus uh, a viral uh, issue, which probably probably ends up having the same pathway, which is you know decreased oxygenation to pretty metabolically fragile structures inside the inner ear that that ultimately can can only sustain so much of a hit. And one of the questions I like to ask is, what happens if we see this pathology and just do nothing about it? Sure. So that's a that's a great question, and again, uh, it's variable depending on what the underlying cause is. Uh, I, I hate the word idiopathic sudden sensory hearing loss, um, but it's pretty accurate in that it, again, it shows that we don't know what we're talking about. 
Uh, we do have some data about the natural course of this, and, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, a fair number of patients will actually get better uh, even if you do nothing. Uh, so the natural course of idiopathic sudden sudden hearing loss, again, this is population-based studies rather than an individual patient, but generally the factors that will affect spontaneous recovery have to do with age of the patient, severity of the loss, and whether or not there was dizziness um, or vertigo associated with it uh, at, the time, at the time of the loss. Those are, those are more poor prognostic factors. But yeah, so patients will get better. There are treatments, though, that, that will do better than, than nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that is up for debate. It's pretty well established now that steroids, uh, in whatever form, I'm sure we'll get into that later, that steroids can, can be helpful. Sure. Um, and just to formal, formally address it, I know you've uh, spoken about it several times, but what is the differential diagnosis when someone walks in to your clinic and you suspect idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss? Well, I think, I think your, di- your differential gets smaller uh, the, as, as you go through your history, and then it gets even smaller as you go through your physical, um, and it gets even smaller as you go through your, your, your workup. Um, you know, certainly, if you've got a completely normal exam other than a unilateral hearing loss and you have an audiogram that shows a, a sensory neural hearing loss, that's not, still not necessarily idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss there are, you know things like high drops or autoimmune in your ear disease, or, um, I mean, if there's a hit, you know, certainly you would parse this out from history if there's trauma or acoustic trauma or anything like that. Uh, you'd even need to get some imaging to rule out, to rule out retrochoclear pathology. Acoustic tumors can present with sudden hearing loss as well. It's rare, but, but they can. So, uh, the list, the list of, uh, potential causes for sudden hearing loss is great, but can be pretty quickly winnowed down, uh, just in a clinic before the patient mm-hmm. even leaves. Uh, and certainly the audiogram is, is really key. Can't have anybody leave your office without an audiogram. Right. So that uh, goes to my next question is, how do you work these folks up when you suspect idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss? Um, so I have the luxury of having kind of on-the-fly audiologies uh, uh, and hearing tests uh, immediately at the point of care when I see, when I see the patient. Uh, and if I don't, I'm, I have a good enough relationship with my, our audiologist that I can just call and say, hey, can you, can you see this guy immediately? Um, and, um, yeah, so audio, audiogram is, is, uh, is critical. I'm not so sure that additional, um, factors, uh, are, are helpful, uh, other than to rule out malingering. A good audiologist will be able to do that. Uh, you know, if their, if their speech reception doesn't match up with your pure tone averages. Um, and certainly if you suspect malingering, which, which should still also be on your differential, I probably should have mentioned that as well. Uh, and that includes not even conscience malingering that could be conversion disorder as well uh that things like oaes and and uh, reflexes can be helpful to rule that rule that out you have to have to have a wide differential in your head uh before you can before you can start to 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 bring it down and when you get your audiogram what are you looking for to find the quote-unquote official diagnosis of sudden hearing loss i kind of you know think about it the same way that I think about asymmetric hearing loss in many respects. You know, traditionally the definition of asymmetric hearing loss is 30 decibels or more, uh, or I think it's 10 or 15 and three consecutive, consecutive frequencies. Uh, but it really is a gestalt, you know, as a, as a clinician, as a practitioner, you have to kind of take, take your, you got to take all the information. If the patient has a prior audiogram, certainly you can compare it to the prior audiogram. If the story adds up and there's a sudden drop and it's sensory neural, uh, then I'd be even willing to treat a, a you know a significant drop of in one frequency, um, or even a mild drop across 
you know, a, a 10 or 15 drop across multiple frequencies or even less uh, if the story is there. For some patients who don't, for most patients are not going to have a prior audiogram though. Um, and for them, I'll just use the contralateral ear as, as what I assume is their baseline. Assuming you ask the patient, you know, were both ears equal prior to this? And what happens just to kind of um, explore this a little differently? What happens if they have bilateral sudden sensory hearing loss? Yeah, that can happen. Um, that that can happen, and it's a real it's a real tricky part. Uh, tr- can be tricky to manage, but in many respects is managed the same way. Your differential increases a little bit. There are some, um, you know, certainly more central causes you start thinking about, both uh, both infectious, viral, uh, as well as um, microvascular conditions that can affect the brainstem. Autoimmune, for sure, uh, can do that as well. Uh, one thing, Jason, I forgot to forgot to mention is uh, in part of the history, I know we're jumping around a little bit here, but um, tinnitus, even unilateral tinnitus can sometimes be an indication. Sometimes people won't, you know, when I mentioned earlier that patients will present with clearly with hearing loss, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes depending on, on what frequency is they're lost or, or how much, uh, you know, how much hearing they've lost, sometimes patients don't complain of hearing loss, they complain of purely just tinnitus, mm-hmm. um, which is, is really probably just from the, you know, Complicated and, and again probably way beyond the scope of this this talk, but um, but the auditory deprivation that comes from that some, for some patients, if it's not certainly not in the frequencies that are involved with speech or depending on what their listening conditions are on a day to day basis, uh, they may present with tinnitus as well. So, um, and what's the role of imaging in these folks? So my philosophy is that all these patients should be imaged, uh, irrespective of. Um, of uh, assuming they have a sensory neural hearing loss, not conductive hearing loss, but a sensory neural hearing loss. Uh, and even if it's not sudden, if there's, I, I almost go by the same criteria as if they had an asymmetric hearing loss. Um, and for that, that's an, uh, an MRI, a contrasted MRI. Right now, that's the gold standard for, for, um, for rule out. Um, you know, if you're limited and you have ABRs, that's helpful, but the sensitivity and specificity, although good, are still not great, especially as you get sort of smaller. Smaller tumors. So I'm a big believer in MRI, and I think that everybody should get it. Uh, I also would caution you to say that even if it's either spontaneously improves, that is the hearing or whatever the symptoms they have, uh, um, with or, or with or with steroids, I still encourage people uh, mm-hmm. to get um, to get further radiographic, you know, MRI workup to rule out underlying pathophysiology. Just because something may be responsive uh, to steroids or even improve spontaneously does not necessarily move, mean that they don't have have anything. And, and I think as otolaryngologists, it's, it's our job to do that um, mm-hmm. because if we don't, nobody nobody will. And is there any role for CT scans? No, not in my mind, not for sensory neurohearing loss uh, with, you know, with the exception of somebody who says uh, it happened immediately after a trauma and, um, you know, and it's, a, it's more of a mixed hearing loss where there's a conductive component. Um, uh, or there's a sense of neural component, but they have a history of uh, a distant history. Say, oh, this happened before when I was four years old. I fell off the jungle gym and hit my head, and I lost my hearing on one side. So, so you know, what I'm getting at is inner ear malformations, but those can be pretty easily picked up on a on a on a MRI, especially a high resolution T2 weighted sequence. And what's the role of lab work up here? Yeah, I I generally don't get lab work historically. There's been there's been all sorts of attempts to kind of um, basically go fishing uh, for for conditions that have led down certain paths that, that may or not been fruitful. 
Uh, usually not, but generally it's considered not very effective, certainly not cost effective. I think it's different if it's a bilateral or you suspect there may be autoimmune conditions going on, but it has to be targeted. It has to be has to be patient-based. Again, I think the, the trick with medicine is, is to have an algorithm in your head, but, but to be willing to have some flexibility uh, when it comes to the individual patient and to, and to tailor your workup and treatment. This is true for everybody, not just for hearing loss. Tailor your treatment specifically to that one individual patient. Everybody has different different needs psychologically and physiologically. So a patient has come to your office. Um, they have unilateral hearing loss. You've gotten the audiogram to confirm that it's sensory neural. It's not conductive. So you feel pretty confident this is what we call idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss. What are your treatment options and how do you counsel patients on the decision of treatment? Right. And and that's a great question. And I think the question that I would ask you back is when are they presenting? Um, Mm -hmm. And here's, here's the kicker is that we, we do know um, both anecdotally and from some pretty good studies that there is a treatment window uh, and that goes along with the physiology of apoptosis and all the other other, um, cellular level mediators that are going on that, that if you're going to do a shotgun-like approach like with, with steroids, that there is a window of opportunity there. Uh, unfortunately, for most of our patients, or many of our patients, I should say, uh, they're not getting to see us within that window. Um, less than 72 hours of onset is probably the goal. Is, is the goal. Uh, but that's rare. A lot of patients will wake up and say, you know, gosh, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a cold, maybe it's flu, maybe it's wax, maybe it's... Uh, Maybe, maybe, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going on. I'll wait it out. I'll wait it out a little bit. I'll give it a week. They call their primary care doctor. The primary care doctor calls them some, some Flonase or they uh, go to urgent care and they're, of course, diagnosed with a uh, otitis media and given a ZPAC. Um, and then it could be weeks before they get into see an otolaryngologist. Um, I try very hard in our health system to uh, collaborate and, and work with our primary care providers um, to identify that a sudden hearing loss is is an emergency and one of the few true otologic emergencies that we have and these these docs need to call us um, directly on our phone. I give everybody my direct number and pager. I'd rather see somebody and it turns out to be wax suddenly than miss somebody who has a sudden hearing loss uh, that can't get in to see me for for you know four months, uh, which unfortunately happens more frequently than not. But anyway, back back to your back to your question. The goal is 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 uh, hit them early and hit them hit them hard. Uh, that's my philosophy. Is that you've got you've got we don't again we don't really know a hundred percent what we're treating. So steroids, although they're powerful anti-inflammatory, we're not a hundred percent sure. We have some theories as to why steroids work, but they're really just a shotgun approach. So I tend to do very high dose steroids uh, orally for sure, unless contraindicated. And in some patients, um, after discussion with them, I may consider doing intratympanic as well. Uh, the science is pretty controversial on this, and there's a lot of studies that for and against. I won't continue steroids for a long time. I'll do kind of a short, short-term short course, about 10 days or so, one milligram per kilogram of prednisone uh, with or without intrapanic steroids. And if they show or don't show improvement uh, afterwards or incomplete improvement, um, I'll offer to continue on with the uh, intrapanic steroids. And what is your window for offering oral steroids? Me personally, I, I give them about a month. Um, after that, um, I just don't understand. I can't wrap my head around why it would work. And although there are people out there that will have and there's, uh, will have improvement with steroids, it's hard to know whether or not it would happen with steroids or without steroids. I'm talking about intratympanic. 
Uh, I know some people will give steroids months and months and months after. I just, uh, I just personally, I can't understand physiologically why that would make any difference uh, above, above just the natural history. Um, so my cutoff is, is about, is about four weeks. And when you prescribe high dose oral steroids, what other considerations do you have and how do you counsel patients on the use of high dose steroids? Sure. I should mention that four weeks and I counsel patients that, you know, diminishing returns with each, which, with each passing day, it would be mm-hmm. ideal to see the patient within the first 72 hours. So, so, um, I counsel patients, many patients are very hesitant, certainly the more savvy patients. Oh, I, I've heard terrible things about steroids. I don't want to be on steroids. It turns out that steroids for the short term are actually, uh, you know, unless there's contraindications like a brittle diabetic, but even in those patients can still work. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, but or, oral steroids, uh, high dose in the short term really doesn't have any downsides other than kind of agitation, sleep, sleep irritation, um, increase in, in, um, in hunger, um, can upset your stomach because of acid production. Uh, so I'll often put people on, uh, not necessarily PPI, but Tums or, or tell them to be aware of the situation, probably to avoid NSAIDs. Um, but most people, once you tell them, listen, you could just take it for 10 days. You don't need a taper, which is true. You generally don't need a taper um, if it's going to be less than a month worth of steroids. Um, and you just kind of reassure them that steroids are not a bad thing. And then they take it. Uh, and not only if they're hearing whether it gets better or not, uh, some patients tend to love it just because it kind of helps or their overall aches and pains and makes them feel, makes them feel better. Uh, but I do 10 days without a taper. There's, no, there's physiologically no need for a taper. So in patients who are diabetic, um, I'll, I'll tell people, especially if they're, if they're able to control and if they're insulin dependent and they're able to do their own sliding scale, I'll tell them, listen, your sugars are probably going to go out of whack uh, and to be careful about what your sugars are doing. Now, it's the real brittle people that are going to skyrocket up, uh, which is a potential that you have to be really careful about. And those are the people that I would get on the phone and speak to their endocrinologist or to their primary care doctor uh, or counsel them to say, listen, uh, maybe we should think about only doing, um, only doing intratympanic steroids for them. Could you describe what intratympanic steroids are? Maybe what your approach is for um, providing this medication and and your timeline for giving it. Sure. So I'm I'm again pretty lucky. I'm able to have a compound pharmacy where I work um, at my institution uh, make pretty high concentration of dexamethasone. So I use 24 milligrams per mil- per milliliter, but it has to be compounded. Um, and um, it has to be refrigerated as well. Um, so it has a certain shelf life. If you've got a busy, busy practice, that's great. Um, some doctors I know will, will give a prescription to the, to the patient and, and have them fill it at their own, you know, outside compounding pharmacy and, and bring it in. Some people will use lower dose. Um, four milligrams is kind of what it comes in or the standard four milligrams of dexamethasone per milliliter. Uh, some of the early papers uh, written by uh, Lauren Parnes uh, and colleagues were about uh, how um, methylprednisolone probably transfuses across the round window better, uh, but that has to be buffered and it stings and uh, it's not readily available. So I, I use dexamethasone. Uh, my technique is is similar to how I do any other injections. I don't use phenol. I use a, a 27 gauge needle, uh, one and a, one and a, I think it's one and a half or one and a quarter length, uh, and make a pinpoint kind of aeration hole of the anterior superior quadrant. Um, and then uh, and then after that, I make a second pinpoint um, in kind of the anterior, uh, excuse me, posterior inferior quadrant and slowly uh, drip it in. A couple things uh, that I do is I, I warm it up. If I knew a patient's coming, um, I'll kind of uh, tell, the, tell the nurses beforehand or if I, if I 
seem like we're heading that way. Maybe while the patient's getting a hearing test, I'll tell the nurses to take it out and warm it up. Uh, patients, uh, the colder it is, the more it, it tends to hurt. But more importantly, get a caloric response, and patients can get can get pretty dizzy uh, from it. So I, I I warm it up. I put it in a TB syringe. Uh, you don't need too much. Less than a cc is is plenty. Probably half a cc is fine. And I have the patient. Of course, I, I talk to the patient through all of this. Most patients are comforted by the fact that you tell them exactly what you're doing and when you're doing it. Um, occasionally, a patient will say, "Please don't tell me anything. I just want to. I just want to close my eyes and get this over with." And that, that's fine. You got to got to gauge each person's comfort level. But I, I find that most patients do better if you just tell them everything that you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, so as I'm injecting them, I, I have them hold on to a Yunkauer uh, suction uh, in their contralateral hand and put that in their mouth. Um, and the reason for that is I don't want patients to swallow uh, while this is being done because uh, I'm going to leave them in that position for a good 15 to 20 minutes uh, for it to perfuse across the round window membrane. Um, and then I, I lay, have them lay there for about 20 minutes, just kind of straight supine. I want I want that posterior quadrant just filled with uh, the posterior area just completely filled with steroid to let it transfuse. In some patients who have had a history of uh, certainly ear surgery or tympanic membrane surgery or certainly middle ear uh, surgery, there may be adhesions that that overlie the round window. You don't know that you can't necessarily tell that by looking in there. So that's why sometimes steroids work in some people, and they don't. Or that I should say that may be one of the factors why steroids may work uh, intratympanically for some patients and not for others. We know that's true for gentamicin injections, but we only assume we can assume the same is true for, for you know, for the dexamethasone or steroid perfusions. And how many injections do you offer over what period of time? I tell the person before we get into this that we're probably committing to three. Again, this is me. I don't think there. There's been lots of different studies of varying quality. Um, how long do you do it? How frequently do you do it? Do you do it every? Do you do it two times a week? Do you do it once a month? Do you do it? I do it once a month. Uh, excuse me, once a week. I do it once a week, and I always get an audiogram before I uh, re-inject because if they're back to normal, certainly even if they, if they're back to normally objectively by the audiogram and they feel like they're back to normal or baseline by their um, subjectively, then I'll then I won't. But if they don't feel back to normal subjectively. Or, the, or certainly, if they're if they're not back to normal by the audiogram, I'll I'll do it for about three. I've found that there's kind of diminishing returns after after three. Uh, and again, by that point, you're already hitting the month marker, and I'm not really sure what we're treating. I think sometimes all these treatments is to make me feel better that we're really doing everything we possibly can. And what's the role for hyperbaric oxygen therapy in these patients? So there's some pretty good evidence coming out, mostly from Europe, suggesting that it can be it can be helpful. Um, the challenge, and we we have some dive um, some dive tanks here where I live, um, but um, the tricky part is to get that done ex- expeditiously. Uh, it can be a, a pain in the butt for people to do um, to get insurance coverage for that within the window within the therapeutic window. Not to mention you you have to have um, tympanostomy tubes. Advantage of tympanostomy tubes uh, that you need to put in before hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, is that it, it gives them an easy route that you could just drip in, drip in the steroids, mm-hmm. you know, Um But I think if it was logistically a little bit easier, uh, I'd be more inclined to offer it to more patients. It's just in my practice, there are very few patients that would, that can, we can make it happen very quickly. Um, and I'm not so sure, and this is true for all treatments, I'm not so sure. Generally, the patients, patients who are the most desperate are the ones who've had the worst hearing loss. Uh, or the ones that are associated with with vertigo or dizziness, and 
the more severe the loss is, uh, generally the less responsive it's going to be to any intervention, including hyperbaric oxygen. That's not to say that it's not on an individual basis, uh, but I think it's less likely. And this might be kind of a guess what I'm thinking question, but what should not be part of the treatment algorithm? I think that depends on what, and you're still in your differential. If you're still pretty much locked into the diagnosis of, of, of idiopathic sudden sense in your hearing loss, um, then I don't think there's too much role for antivirals or, or bringing patients in-house in and perfusing them with, with intravenous steroids or thrombolytics or vasodilators or, mm -hmm. or you know, any, anything like that. I, that's just not, I don't think that's practical. There are places around the world that do that. I'm not sure that there's super high quality science to, to back that up. Uh, there is some when it comes to antivirals to show that it, it probably doesn't. I encourage everybody to check out the Cochrane uh, database. Uh, which is updated every couple of years. Uh, and this, that's true not just for sudden hearing loss, but for a whole bunch of different uh, otologic and otolaryngologic conditions. Um, it's a really great resource for, for, for being up to date. And when, these, when you treat these patients, how do you uh, counsel them on outcomes and expectations? I tell people from the get-go, you have to be a little careful. People, people uh, are freaking out. Uh, at the beginning, and it's you have to be a little careful in terms of how you manage these patients. Uh, if you certainly if you have dizziness, or you've got really bad tinnitus, um, and you've got hearing loss, this is an incredibly distressing situation for a lot of patients with with good reason. Reassuring patients that it, things are going to work themselves out, even if audiologically the hearing doesn't improve. A lot of the associated conditions, certainly the, the dizziness and the tinnitus, are, are are more likely than not going to improve if not resolve. Uh, within the better part of a year. But that's a long time when you're talking to somebody who's now it's been two weeks of, of misery and they're looking at another, another 50 weeks of hanging in there. I'd say for all comers, uh, and this is, you know, generic, generic person, and I, I don't know anything about the degree of the hearing loss, all comers, I, I'll tell patients about a third of patients will get completely better, a third of patients will get partially better, and a third of patients won't get better at all uh, with respect to their, the degree of hearing loss. The other, the other things like tinnitus and dizziness do tend to get better. But there's a lot of, lot of hand-holding that has to happen when you do that. Mm -hmm. I don't start talking about rehabilitative options, even in patients that I have a low suspicion that they're going to improve. I don't start talking about that until down the road. It's just too much, too much to handle for, for sure. patients, too much coming at them all at once. And how do you follow up with these folks? I keep a tight leash on them. Um, um, general, I, I try to, at least. Not everybody, not everybody does, of course. But um, I, I'll bring them back, certainly during the duration of their treatment, if they're, if they're getting uh, salvage therapy uh, steroids. And as we start heading towards the month marker, um, then we'll start talking more about rehabilitative options, be it hearing aids or crosses or bicrosses or even cochlear implants, Bajas, things like that. Um, I'll start introducing that into the discussion around a month to a month and a half later. And see, again, you have to, you have to tailor it to the, to the individual patient. Um, but, uh, I feel them out. I feel them out and I kind of go down that, go down that road of hearing aids and crosses and bahas and cochlear implants again, mm -hmm. depending on the severity and depending on the patient. Well, I think we've covered a lot of this topic. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is worth mentioning? I think the guidelines that are put out by the, the clinical practice guidelines that are put out by the Academy uh, are really helpful. Uh, but I would caution on, on, on looking too, you know, holding it too, too strongly, in, in, especially with respect to the word guideline. It's a really good document. If you read the full, and I do recommend everybody, particularly otolaryngologists in training, read the whole document because it's a really good summary of what data is out there and what good data is out there what bad data are out there. 
Um, so in the end, if, when you look at the summary of the guideline, you know, what they call the key action statements, there are some that are strong recommendation you know, or for or strong recommendation against, and those are based on, on strong evidence. And there are some that are kind of some that are kind of uh, you know option or mild or or you know things where there's there's no data to to suggest that it's it's helpful. And a lot of what we do uh, is certainly anecdotal. You know these days, um, with good reason, it's very hard to do you know really good high quality placebo controlled studies prospectively, you know randomized, double blinded, etc. Against uh, against a control that is a non-intervention, you can't really you can't really do that ethically. So um, so bear that in mind when reading reading these um, these guidelines that the recommendations for against uh, are important, but it's really the background reading uh, that's in those forty pages of of, of uh, detail that that are really the meat of the matter that really gives you an idea of what's out there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. I'll provide a quick summary. And I also did want to hit those key action statements just for completeness. Um, So in summary of what we talked about today, patients typically present with hearing loss over 72 hours, though this can be hard to parse out, especially if they've seen other providers first. And this can be accompanied with oral fullness or tinnitus. Um, There are some risk factors to hearing loss, um, like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, other things like that, but it's not always apparent. On physical exam, you want to do a good head and neck exam, including an ear exam and a tuning fork exam. And the etiology of this is still unknown, but can include viral infection and vascular compromise. Uh, Differential diagnosis is long, and so your workup should include uh, imaging, uh, including MRI to rule out retrocochlear pathology. But the big part of your workup is going to be an audiogram, and lab workup is not routinely required. Treatment can involve oral steroids, intratympanic steroids, or hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, and should not involve antivirals, thrombolytics, vasodilators, or vasoactive substances. And to review the key action statements from the 2019 guidelines, um, we should exclude conductive hearing loss when these folks uh, present and assess for any modifying factors uh, through the physical exam and history taking. CT is not recommended here. We do want to get an audiogram. We do not need to obtain uh, routine laboratory tests, uh, but it is recommended that we get an MRI or an ABR to rule out retrocochlear pathology. As Dr. Coelho alluded to, there are some optional uh, recommendations in terms of treatment, which include oral corticosteroids uh, within two weeks of symptom onset, uh, intratympanic steroids as a salvage therapy within one month of onset, and then uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Dr. Coelho, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to add? My pleasure. I think it's a great thing that you're doing, and and certainly in these crazy times, um, it's great to have uh, alternative uh, ways of educating ourselves, keeping up to date, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll now move into the question asking portion of our time here. Uh, as a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what is the official definition of sudden hearing loss?
Again, referencing those 2019 guidelines, the quote-unquote official definition is over 72 hours a patient experiences sudden hearing loss and the audiogram shows an asymmetric 30 decibel loss in three consecutive frequencies. But it is worth pointing out that clinically we need to parse through this to determine if there's a clinic clinically meaningful uh, hearing loss that should be treated even if it doesn't meet these requirements. Our next question is, what imaging should be obtained in the patient with sudden sensory neural hearing loss? Imaging should be routinely obtained for folks uh, suffering from sudden sensory neural hearing loss, and this should be in the form of a an MRI to rule out retrochochlear pathology. And remember that even if they improve with steroids, an MRI should be obtained. And finally, what are the treatment options for sudden sensory neural hearing loss? And what is the potentially proposed window for treatment? Options for treatment for idiopathic sudden sensory neural hearing loss include oral steroids, which are typically offered within two weeks of hearing loss, but can be extended depending on the clinical situation. Intratympanic steroids, which can be offered up to six weeks as salvage therapy and hyperbaric oxygen therapy as well. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.